You're listening to a DM podcast. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, adman and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. John Colley is a highly regarded and awarded screenwriter whose film scripts include well-known successes as diverse as Master and Commander and Happy Feet. A qualified doctor, he's also a respected journalist and best-selling novelist. A fascinating man who exudes a charming and infectious delight for the world around him, it was a joy to hear him take the Five of My Life challenge. So John, welcome to Five of My Life. Lovely to be here. Now you are a special guest on Five of My Life. Uh, because I think we've had 110 so far, but nobody has been more indecisive than you. <laughs> That's good. You are. I'll take that as a compliment. Uh, no, well, it's not a compliment. You are <laughs> bloody hilarious. I get the email of your choices. I thought, oh, that's great. I'll get, I'll get stuck into those. And then I get the email going, can I change my film? And I go, well, if you must. I think that's all right. I'll let him off. And then I get one going, and can I change my possession? I go, well, I didn't do much research on the possession so yeah okay you can and then i get one he is taking the piss can i change my song and i wrote you going well you can but you can't change your book mate because <laughs> i've already, already read, it. read it and at least it was only 350 pages so you didn't have kind of war and peace to work through is the list the last list this is the, the real last list oh we might we might change our mind as we go Nigel but let's see uh, yeah, let's start and see where we get to <laughs> okay well listen we start on five my life uh, which is pretty relevant for yourself uh, and one of your amazing professional careers uh, is uh, the film uh, and you've chosen the 1981 cult classic the French film diva yeah. Well, I think my original film was going to be Witness, which is... You can't change now, I mate. Mean, I'm not going to change it now, but it was... Uh, which I thought was an example of, like, structurally and emotionally almost a perfect film. And this film as an art form is could be on the way out, you know. These independent movies that we used to make for 10 or $20 million, the perfectly told sort of 100-minute movie, is now under serious threat both from the Marvel epics at one end and the and the Netflix sort of uh, series at the other end. And so it's becoming quite difficult to fund these things. But anyway, Diva, 1981, by a French filmmaker called Jean-Jacques Benix. Interesting thing about that, this film is that none of the actors will be recognisable stars. Jean-Jacques made one other film called Betty Blue, which was reasonably commercially successful. I and, and love didn't, Betty Blue. But he didn't really make anything else after that. And so it's sort of an example of just one of those uh, accidents of fate where everything comes together. And filmmaking is such a kind of, well, it's a thought out process to a large extent. But when you start making it and producing it, there's so many things that can go wrong. And it is really lightning in a bottle making a film that really works like this. 
I've always believed that film is a vehicle for, for philosophy, and I know that's one of your great interests. You studied theology and philosophy at university. But I really don't know what this film means. I just know that it's a film that I love to inhabit. And it's the story of a young uh, guy in Paris who falls in love with an opera singer who's sort of 20 years older than him. And he goes to her performance and, uh, and illegally records the performance. And one of her things is that she's never uh, made a commercial recording at all. And then he goes to see her kind of post-performance uh, sort of interviews and he steals the dress that she wore. And it gets quite kinky after that because he then takes the blue dress to a prostitute and gets her to put it on and, and pretends that she's the kind of the, the opera singer. But this rather crazy love story between this wonderfully innocent, but as I say, innocent but strange young postman, then gets kind of interleaved with a classic sort of French crime uh, thriller, which revolves around another prostitute who's on the rung from a heroin gang, which is all kind of wrapped up with the chief of police. And uh, anyway, it all gets very strange and uh, convoluted. But it is such a work of art, this movie. There's, it's, it's full of arty locations, beautiful, strange moments like a walk around the Luxembourg Gardens, which actually could have been one of my favorite places in the world, to the music of Eric Satie. And it's just, uh, it's just sublime. It's one of these films that is like comfort food that I can go back to again and again and just live inside. So I was fascinated when we, we landed on this particular one because having done a little bit of research on you and seeing some of your wonderful uh, interviews about the art of screenwriting, it doesn't seem to fit with a uh, cat up tree. It doesn't fit the conventional three-act structure at all. But, but I, I love the notion of you can love things and not really know why you love them. And not bit, understand a bit, them. A bit like the latest Bowie film, which is Incoherent Vomit. But it's brilliant. <laughs> you know, Moon Age Daydream, you go, what are you doing, mate? But, but it's great, but you know, I don't know why. So, so would you mind telling our listeners uh, just some of the principles of, of conventionally good screenwriting? So conventionally good screenplay actually the the film about filmmaking that i would recommend is uh, is inception which is about a guy who brings together a team of people and there is effectively a designer um, a director a couple of actors they put together an imaginary he calls it a maze you know but it is a kind of a, it's a it's a world in which you have the impression of agency. You have the impression of being able to make your own decisions, but actually you're being very specifically led to a destination. And getting to that destination involves personal change on the part of the central character. And hopefully along the way you become so in love with, so identified with that central character that when they change, you change. And you start to reflect afterwards on what it was that they did differently that you can apply to your own life. So every film, in my mind, is a little philosophy lesson. And the example that I often use when I'm lecturing about this is The Full Monty, where you have a guy who's gay and hasn't admitted he's gay, who's imp another guy who's impotent and hasn't admitted he's impotent, another guy who's uh, unemployed and hasn't admitted uh, to his wife even that he's unemployed. They all get involved in this ridiculous act of self-exposure and achieve success doing it. And then thematically, that film is about you know, um, uh, displaying your vulnerability is actually a route to power. 
a, yeah. a route to fulfillment. You know, actually, don't be afraid of telling people what you can't do because uh, that self-revelation is basically empowering. And that thematic message is why the film is emotion. Emotion is meaning. That's the real lesson of filmmaking, that, that if, if it means something to you, and, it, and the interesting thing about the meaning is that the meaning is, has to be so carefully embedded that you don't quite know what you're learning until you've learned it, and then you think it's your own. And so a really great film will do that to you. It will actually implant a philosophy in your mind that you embrace unconsciously. So I love that because I, I, I think sometimes you can come out of a film, you're emotionally moved, you love it, you tell all your mates, God, that's brilliant, you've got to go and see that. And you don't even know what the lesson is, even though you've learned the lesson. Exactly. Now, and I know that sounds like gobbledygook, yeah, yeah. But, but, but you, so, so the way you expressed it in one interview I, I uh, saw of yours, which is we acquire power by revealing our weakness. Yeah. Now, mate, I've watched The Full Monty and yeah. I liked it. Yeah. But if someone asked me what was it about, what it was about I, I wouldn't crack out that phrase. Sure. But, but it, it, it's very very accurate and perceptive yeah. and and I, I saw you go through a whole bunch of films doing and what that film means is x and on every single one i thought my god he's he's right and and the one of the ones we, we had um we, we had emile sherman on yeah uh, uh who who done oh, many, no, sure. many many films exactly. but one of them was the king's speech yeah and what was the you, you had yeah, a brilliant and, and so the king's speeches in my mind and you know this is a little bit of a party trick in that you can kind of apply the meaning you're, that you're retrospectively doing you're retrospective yeah. uh, meaning yeah. exactly to any film but the king's speech is we, we live in this world which is awash with people telling their own stories and you feel that your own story is going to be drowned out by everybody else's you know and the lesson of the king's speech is that you have to learn to speak quietly and sincerely as if to someone you love that's what the king learns you know i, I just love it and, and then you did one which is slumdog millionaire which, yeah. which i adore the original book it was called something else it wasn't called that uh, the book but but the the, the the book that the film is of. yeah sure um but slumdog millionaire you said uh, your wealth is your life experience not your money yeah Mate, that, you're you are you're a genius look, well it's not you know look it's it's quite, when you start to analyze films in that way you can find out what they meant to you you're at a certain time in your life and work out the lesson that you needed at that point in life. And, and Slumdog Millionaire came out at the time of the global financial crisis in which we all had to be reassured that all the shitty things that had happened to us in our lives were actually um, were actually our wealth. That's what the Dev Patel story illustrates. You know? so, so, so as an art, here we go. So this is utterly fascinating. But do you, you personally, John, do you create it from scratch uh, or uh, what do you prefer? Or someone comes to you like like I know you're doing Boy Swallows Universe yeah, yeah. now. Do, do you uh, prefer someone saying I've done this thing? You know, it's 900 pages long. Yeah. You mate have got to make it into a uh, you know 90 minute film and give it secret meaning that resonates with people. Do you prefer adapting someone's existing work or creating from scratch? Well, they're they're very similar. So enterprises, because even if you're given, so I'm doing two projects at the minute, one which we just actually wrapped on Boyce Wallace Universe, this wonderful sort of 500 page uh, Trent Dalton novel, which I did as eight episodes. In, and that's full of different meanings. But, uh, but the one that really leapt out at me was uh, the fact that your life situation doesn't constrain either your imagination or your ability to learn you know and so the, and the guy played in the series by Simon Baker uh, who plays Trent's uh, alcoholic father is is also a bibliophile so this guy living in social housing who's basically you know kind of hope the most hopeless drunk you can imagine violent to his children yeah. and you know, out of it most of the time 
is actually incredibly well read. And, you know, Trent's life and his book is a testament to the fact that, you know, you you don't need to be constrained in where you can go in your imagination just because you're living in a certain set of, of circumstances, you know. So that's that one. And, you know, the interesting thing about Trent's book was it's uh, – it's full of wonderful set pieces, and as the person is adapting it, you've got to find the connective tissue because when you're reading a book, you kind of you fill in the gaps yourself. You imagine how we get from A to B, but screenwriting is a slightly different art in that the audience has to follow a chain of events, and, the, and this chain of events has to be so watertight that at no point do they wake up from this dream and go, wait a minute, how did that happen? You have to answer every question as you go, but in a kind of sub conscious way. The other project that I'm doing for working title is, and it's probably really bad timing, is, uh, um, is the life of Yuri Gagarin, who was the first man in space. Of course, this is a time in history when it's almost impossible that we'll ever be able to film anything in Russia. So, uh, But, you know, that's, these things happen. Um, and, uh, and with Gagarin, uh, I was given a wonderful book by Stephen Walker, who wrote about Gagarin's first flight. But then you've got to read all about, to create a Russian mission control to create um, just the story of these massive rockets as the weight of a train that they made to fire one guy into space. You have to do so much reading around the subject, and then you load up with all this research. And then you have to distill it into, as you say, like the kind of, the kind of what is the story and what is the theme. And sometimes, you know, you don't know what it's about until you've written it or written a draft, and then you go, ah, that's what it's about, that's what it's about. But when you get that, when you find out what it's about, when, it's thematic, when you find out what it's thematically about, that's, that's when you can really start refining the story and make it all point in that direction. It just, it's in, incredible to think of it specifically as a separate art do, do you ever meet creators who so i've written four books yeah who, who other people tell me what they're about and you go really i i, I just wrote them no yeah, wrote, well do, do, do you ever meet you, you know you're adapting something and you go i found your theme and the bloke or the woman says that isn't that isn't what i was going for no no well uh, it's actually if i can tell you about uh, working with peter weir who was uh, the most delightful man when I went to uh, work with him on Martian Commander I'd uh, made no movies or made one movie and Peter had, had made a, a bunch of fabulous classics and uh, he said tell me how you write a movie John, how you John write a movie and uh, and we'll do it that way you know so I said well I kind of you know I sort of uh, we get <laughs> we get these 21 novels and we work out you know the sequences that we like and then we start telling each other the story in a certain order of events and this there's these sort of three acts and some people say it's five acts and, and Peter goes, stop, stop, stop. You know, I don't want to know any of that film theory stuff. That's how you break it, you know. So yeah. in Peter's mind, um, we just start free forming, we play music, we put on silly hats and we act out <laughs> scenes and and this will magically come together. And lo and behold, it did because and, you know, I don't know. It's funny, it's like art and science, they both work to the same end in a strange way, you know, that you can get to the secrets of kind of quantum mechanics through Hindu philosophy as easily as you can through mathematics. That's, I, look, I don't understand how that works, but working with Peter, we did finally, I think, uh, create the perfect kind of uh, three-act movie, you know, but in this way where Peter would just bounce into the office and, and go, hey, 
I've got this great idea. There's this, there's a scene in the books where uh, where the sea turns purple and there's an underwater volcano and a and a whale surfaces <laughs> and I'm kind of <laughs> clutching my head and going, well, where does that fit? Yeah. No, no, no. Write it, write it. We'll we'll work it out later. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my word. Well, listen, uh, on the second choice on Five of My Life, so I, I love this going to different art forms because you, you colossus, you stride both. Uh, the book is the second um, yeah. uh, choice on Five of My Life. And not only do you make wonderful films, but you write wonderful books, you, you Renaissance man. And you've chosen Graham Greene's 1958 Our Man in Havana. Now, I hadn't read that before, and I don't know why. I sort of thought, Graham Greene, oh, God, it's going to be a bit... <sighs> You know, yeah. a bit serious. It's hilarious. It's wonderful, isn't it? Absolutely yeah. hilarious. Anyway, but, so, but tell us about Our Man in Havana well, and why you, you know, chose it. Interestingly, Graham Greene started off life as a film reviewer and uh, uh, his literary career came out of film reviewing. So he was kind of embedded in, in the whole sort of structural kind of form of movies before he started writing novels. And also he was, I mean, my favourite novelists when I was growing up were all basically writing, they were basically journalists. They were writing about real-life experience, Hemingway and Steinbeck and Graham Greene, and there was a form back then of, like, the perfectly made 350-page novel with kind of... uh, um, with a mixture of thriller elements and love story and humour. And again, you know, Our Man in Havana, when I was a young boy in Edinburgh growing up, spoke to me of this world of exotic faraway places and strange down-at-heel characters wearing kind of <laughs> crumpled linen suits and the worlds of spying and, you know. And I guess at that age, I missed some of the irony and some of the pathos because the guy, Wormold, a fantastically unromantic name, a central character is a vacuum cleaner salesman in Havana who's gone completely broke trying to um, kind of give the life that he he's divorced and he's trying to look after his beautiful teenage daughter who the <laughs> chief of police has taken a <laughs> fancy to. <laughs> There's a scene where Wormald and the chief of police confront each other and the book is full of laugh out loud humour as you know but, but also as Graham Greene did brilliantly in, in those novels that he called his entertainments um, it's, it's humour which has also got a really deep vein of serious philosophy in it. And, and Wormald says to the chief of police, you're not going to torture me, are you? And the chief of police said, no, Mr. Wormald, you are not a member of the torturable classes. <laughs> you know, there's actually so much awful truth in that statement. You know, and so Graham Greene was, he was, um, uh, I think, a fabulous novelist and uh, and and I think his books are really enduring. The dialogue is hilarious. You know, uh, it, yeah. ju- just yeah. sensational. And, and I lo- love the thing you've just said about how it's funny, but there's clearly real intelligence yeah. and proper points yeah. uh, behind it. I-, I love the art of an under statement sure right yeah. so, so uh, i mean th- th- this podcast is evergreen but hopefully when people listen to it they'll still remember you know megan and harry and all that rubbish but th- there's you know i don't know if the queen or someone was asked about one of the the complaints and and just recollection recollections vary yeah brilliant so yeah. the graham green's version of that is it, you know they're talking about i don't know betraying someone or someone sure. being killed or, or are we going to be dealing with russia or america or our yeah. ally is and the bloke says, 
because Wormald asks, you, you know, are, are we are, are we allies with you know Germany, whatever? Yeah. And he just says, up to a point. Yeah, yeah. And you go, what the bloody hell does that mean? Yeah, so everything's negotiable. Well, well up to a point. Yeah, wow. And also, you know, like a funny little novel like that takes you back authentically to 1958. Did you say it was written? Yeah. So we're 13 years after the end of the war, where we still like the Germans are still people who killed our yeah. brothers and sisters and fathers. You know. The Russians are now this massive threat. This is on the edge of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And um, everyone is, I mean, globally, there was a sense of kind of despair and terror that almost matches the present day. Yeah. And to write, to choose to write a comedy about that period, you know. So the, the version that I, um, I, I, whenever my guest sends me a list, even ones like you that change their choices, yeah, yeah. I don't wait. I immediately go out and buy them. Uh, and Book Depository sent me whatever edition. And yeah. an introduction by Christopher Hitchens. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, I just love his writing. Um, and he was talking about the theme of drink. Yeah, and you go, if I hadn't read that, it's a bit like you talking about the summer, summarizing a film and it makes sense. You go, every single scene... They're drinking whiskey. It's about drink. Well, here's the other thing about themes in movies and books is that you bring your own preoccupation <laughs> to the movie. Chris, Christopher Hitchens was, I guess, was quite a drinker. And there is a lot of drink in it. I mean, yeah. thematically, the story to me is about does your loyalty belong to your nation or to your loved ones? You know, You're and doing it again. No, you are no. the world's best summarizer. <laughs> this is fantastic. Do you know Graham Greene? His boss was Kim Philby. In that's real right. life. That's right. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so this is not just some knock around. No, I, mean, exactly. I know he called it an entertainment, but it's a, exactly. I, I'm very grateful that you that you sort of pointed me to it. And, and I, I was telling you earlier, um, walking up the stairs, that I've, I've just read Les Miserables, yeah, yeah. One I get, which is 1,300 pages. Um, this was such an easy read. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I think I did it in two goes. Because no, sure. I, I just you know, wanted it's to carry on. It's very quick. It flies by, uh, and it is a fantastic book. And that thing that you say about authenticity, you know, Graham Greene had worked for MI5. He did know this world. I think that's a characteristic of most of the authors that I really like. They, they're not just riffing. No. It's what I hate about Marvel movies, actually. It's just like assembled assemblies of the best parts from other films you've seen before, and there's no truthful real-life experience in there often. Whereas people like Hemingway and Steinbeck and Graham Greene were writing about a world they really knew, you know, like of Mice and Men, Steinbeck had been there, you know, and, and for whom the bell tolls, Hemingway had been there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you are a, a brilliant. I, I've been talking to a number of people that know you. Be afraid, be very afraid. Okay. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I've got, got this wonderful. Um, everyone, no one would say a bad word about you. Um, uh, you're a very modest chap, uh, which is, hey, that's a very attractive quality. Um, but you've you've written very successful books. You, 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 you I mean, I mean, you, you haven't even mentioned that you're a bloody qualified doctor. Uh, um, talk a little bit about whether you prefer if, if that's not a crass question writing for film or writing books i uh, look uh, ultimately when i switched from novel writing to film writing it was a commercial decision because it's really very difficult unless you're a multi multi-million selling author it's very difficult to make a living out of uh, books whereas you can make quite a good living out of film writing, even if nobody makes your films. You know, so. Oh, you, so you get paid irrespective of whether people go to Westfield to watch so, it. So after my second novel, which is called The Paper Mask, it was the story of a bogus doctor. Um, uh, that got made into a movie. And then and I, I wrote it 
adapted it myself in three weeks. My agent said, you can't deliver this now. They'll think it was too easy. You know, so, <laughs> so we waited for a month and then I delivered it. And that got made uh, amazingly. And, um, and that sort of started me on, on that path. And really, you know, now that my kids have grown up and I don't have school fees to pay and, uh, you know, life gets a little bit uh, less frenetic, uh, it would be nice to go back to novel writing. So you think you've, you've got another one, two, three, four, oh, like, you? like all writers, you know, you kind of, you, you file away, you know, the sort of the list of ideas that, oh, one of these days I'll write that one. And of course, we will all die with a sort of a filing cabinet full of unexplored and unwritten ideas, but there's a few of them in there, yeah. Um, total tangent, are you a fan of The Moth? Have you come across The Moth? I have, a, yeah, it's great, isn't it? So, yeah. so the notion of, I, I wish I'd... Wish I'd learnt this earlier. It's all too late for me now. But just the the just storytelling, full stop storytelling. Storytelling. You got, that's what I have been. Without knowing it, yeah. I've been pinging back to storytelling, not knowing that that's what sure, I'm doing. And I think it, it, what the what the moth for listeners who don't know the moth, it's it's uh, it's real life individuals who have a tale to tell. You know, and um, what's interesting about that uh, series is that it demonstrates that. Stories, I truly believe, come from, they're born of real life experience. And, and we live in an age now where it's possible to be just a filmmaker, just a novelist, and that becomes your full-time job. And I think that's quite dangerous because really the best tales come from lived life, you know. I, you know, it wasn't a conscious decision to do medicine and then have various adventures as a doctor and then use that as the raw material. But that's certainly how my life panned out. It's sort of how Jack London's life panned Somerset out. You know, Somerset Morm. Somerset Morm, you know, yeah. like Jack London spent three, uh, two years of the Klondike Gold Rush and then spent the rest of his life writing about that intense experience. And even a scientist like Charles Darwin, you know, spent five years on the Beagle and then spent 30 years evolving the theories that came from that. But you need that core of real life experience, good and bad, in order to... I think, write convincingly and well. And it's, it's a part of the equation that, as I say, in the modern age, it's possible just to go to university, study literature, and then, and then be a writer without really having experienced much. So I, I was at a dinner party where, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm slow to the party where someone was crapping on about chat GPT. Yeah. And it melted my mind oh, that, I, that they did it in front of me. Yeah. Right? So, so we, we made up a, a, you know, a title, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, and, and made it sort of outlandish, yeah. you, you know, uh, Brazilian prince meets oh, Canadian girl and they get together yeah. and set up a company yeah. and then get married. Yeah. Right? Uh, 80,000 word novel, press enter. Yeah. And it started coming up. It started I mean, there, it. Yeah. literally there. No, no, it's, I, I did that with my daughter the other day. We sat on uh, on the sofa and I told her the first half of this plot I was writing and she put it into chat GPT and it came out with a really good Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, look, it's, it's going to be the next thing we've all got to deal with. Yeah. Uh, we're all kind of facing our own redundancy. When I was a young doctor, there was a bloke who, was, who I worked for who was uh, designing computer program to diagnose the cause of abdominal pain in astronauts, you know, it's okay. Basically, or, or Arctic explorers, I've got a abdominal pain, is this appendicitis or not? And he found out that if the computer asked 
this rank of kind of 50 questions, it could diagnose abdominal pain as well as a surgeon, even way back then. And this was the sort of 80s, you know. So, so the version that your daughter and my mate yeah. are, are playing around with yeah. is, is the baby version. That's the baby version, yeah. You know, in yeah, yeah. five, ten years' time, it will be... It'll be Graham Green. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Well, someone who had uh, who wrote from real life experience. Oh my gosh, just incredible! The third choice on Five My Life is always the song, and we always add it to the Spotify playlist, yeah. which is a sensation because it's algorithm busting. Yeah, AI right. would never come up with the Five My Life yeah. playlist because yeah. there is no link yeah. apart from the people I get on. Uh, and you have chosen uh, a song from Johnny Mitchell's fourth studio album, the Blue Album, yeah. and it's California. I'm gonna see the folks I dig. I 1971. 1971. Uh, yeah. Tell us why you have chosen that, you romantic, or, or maybe okay. not. No. So, um, can I can I mention my previous choices that cut, crossed off the list? <laughs> no, you, I, I think <laughs> we g- won't go g- back. No, no, given my introduction, I think you must. <laughs> what, what what was the previous one? Well, I, what did I have? I had El- there was an Elvis Costello song. Then there was a kind of Steely Dan song. That was it. And then, <laughs> and then there was a really obscure one by. Uh, uh, Paul Desmond, who was Dave Brubeck's sax player, who is just a genius. And uh, uh, just a shout out for Paul Desmond if you want to listen to the most sublime bebop jazz. Listen to him. But anyway. It's not the 15 of my life. It's not the 15 (laughs) of my life. So Joni Mitchell, uh, my great friend Andy Flockert, who was uh, in my school, went to an old boys school in Edinburgh, George Watson's College. And Andy was this sort of wonderful teenage dope smoking hippie from a very liberal family and you know the music we grew up with in our early teens which is the music that you kind of get you know, somehow gets imprinted on your brain doesn't it and that was James Taylor uh, Elton John the first Elton John album uh, Joni Mitchell Carol King and these were like they're kind of perfect albums and you know, we were talking earlier about the perfect book but the 40 minute album of music and Joni Mitchell the album Blue like everyone is uh, just insane insanely good it's in fact one of the great pleasures of having teenage children growing up is that they'll bounce into the room and go, dad dad have you ever heard of Joni Mitchell <laughs> <laughs> anyway California is this song where she goes through sitting in a park in Paris France you know then I go to a Greek island and I meet this kind of these rogues on the Greek islands and then I go to Spain and go to a party down a red brick road. That was my escape from Edinburgh when I was a teenager and then when I was a student. Because at medical school, uh, where I went in Edinburgh, you got three-month holidays. You could basically go anywhere. And, and uh, you know, never had any money, but you'd jump on an interrail or just go hitchhiking. And you'd end up in the most extraordinary scrapes and wonderful places. And look, I hope that... That freedom to travel is, I know it is because my children are doing it, but, uh, oh, God, you know, the kind of just leaving kind of overcast Edinburgh and just heading off with a backpack and, uh, you know, 50 pounds in your pocket, you know, I'll get a job somewhere. You, yeah. know, and you end up 
drying glasses in, in Saint-Tropez in a bar or, or, uh, or working as, uh, as a lighthouse keeper in the Orkney Islands or pretending to be a tour guide in Greece. You know, all of these strange scrapes and jobs that I and my friends got into these years of traveling. And that song uh, by Joni Mitchell really evokes that, yeah. I'm wonderful. I'm, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to go down a romantic uh, rabbit hole now, because you, you mentioned earlier that, that all of your favourite um, authors were journalists, and you married one. Yeah. <laughs> and this song is is uh, written, she's just broken up with a bloke called Graham Nash. And, yeah. And, and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, Crosby, Stills and Nash. That, that, yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. She, she, gosh, and then James Taylor, so she, just an incredible story. And yeah. that, um, Rolling Stone has it as the third best album ever ever really e- ever made and you go I mean, yeah, all these yeah. lists are stupid yeah, but yeah. hey it's in the top 10 it's fantastic um but but tell us how you met deborah oh deb's and i so um you know life as you know is like a, it's a mixture of planning and accident and after i'd written my uh novel uh a paper mask uh, a friend of mine angela gordon as she was then angela palmer still a great friend had got a job as the editor of the Sunday Times, of the, of the Observer Colour Supplement in London. And Angela rings up and goes, oh, John, you're a writer and you're a doctor. We need a, we need a medical column on the back page of the magazine, you know. So, and I thought, wow, this is a way to combine my job, which is being a doctor, and my great love writing. And I can also travel. Like, so you can go anywhere you like. We'll pay you £500, which was like a fortune per column, you know. As long as it's got a vaguely medical kind of theme, then send in your sort of uh, thousand words and we'll pay you 500 pounds. So, so this went on for six years. So this is like the trip before the trip. That's you are Steve before. Coogan. Uh, you you no, just go away and then just go write Go away, stuff. come back with something that is, uh, you know, sort of like the, to, to entertain the readers with. You know? so, um, so then you have license as a doctor to kind of, you know, leaf through the British Medical Journal, find the craziest job <laughs> that you can find. And so this, this one pops out. It goes, doctor required uh, to accompany a plane load of medical supplies to Azerbaijan. Wow, okay. And it was uh, it turned out actually to be a kind of like a sweetener for an oil deal. I didn't know that at the time, but I end up sitting in this Illusion aircraft, which is the biggest aircraft in the world, you know, with a a nose cone that is made of glass so you can actually sit in the nose cone and look down at the Russian step and this flies mm. flies me to Azerbaijan where there's a war going on where there's actually there's still a war going on but, right. uh, between Azerbaijan and Armenia uh, so we deliver the medical supplies and I as best as I can tell the Russian doctors what we've brought and what they're all for you know and um, my <laughs> fixer Octe who turned out to be an ex-army kind of Soviet paratrooper. I said, look, I've, I've never been to a war zone, Octi. What's it like there? And Octi says, well, I'll take you. you know? right. The next thing I know, we're on a Russian military helicopter flying to the front line and there's these madmen firing howitzers into the darkness and, you know, tracer bullets coming the other way. So, okay, I know what a war is like now. It's all complete madness and pointless, you know. Flew back through Moscow and had one contact there who uh, Australian readers will remember with great fondness, Robert Hopt. He was a just he was this fabulous Rabelaisian character living in a wonderful old flat in Moscow. And uh, and Robert said, what, you're just passing through? You've got to stay. This is the hinge of history. This is like everything is happening, you know. Yeltsin has taken over and, uh, and the ruble is in a death spiral and kind of uh, these 
capitalist maniacs are moving into Moscow. And it was a very strange and wonderful time that sort of the Moscow army generals were selling the samovar and the carpet on the street while kind of uh, prostitutes were making more than the cosmonauts. You know, it was like the world had turned upside down. And uh, it was there that I met Deb, who was working as a journalist for the ABC, Deb Snow. She and Monica Athard shared a flat and were uh, just, and they had the time of their lives. When I first uh, met Deb, I opened the wardrobe in her bedroom and a bulletproof vest fell out. And I thought, okay, this is the girl for me. (laughs) (laughs) My next job that I had fixed up was to go to the Solomon Islands. And uh, I was in the Solomon Islands when Deb, rang up and said she was pregnant. So we, well, well, I'm going to stop you there because yeah. that's the perfect... I didn't know that's where you were going to go. Your yeah. fourth choice yeah. is the place, and yeah. you have chosen uh, Geizo, is that Gizo. how you pronounce it? Geizo, Gizo sorry, Island. on the Solomon Islands. Yeah, so, yeah. so maybe continue with that story, and this is your fourth choice on Five My Life, yeah, uh, sure. Gizo, Solomon Islands. Gizo and the Solomon Islands. So she calls Islands. up and says, mate, I've got news. I've got news. And so we met back in London, and uh, we went, okay, let's do it. And oh, look, it wasn't the same. There's a, there's a whole story behind all that. Uh, we actually, so we end up, we went to counselling actually, because we, and, and we go to see this counsellor at University College Hospital in London, and uh, we're both in tears going, oh, look, we're kind of 40, and we sort of, we just met a year ago, and Debs is pregnant, and we sort of don't know what to do. And the woman who was uh, counselling us said, uh, wait a minute, you're John Cully, you write that article in the Observer newspaper is so full of wisdom and philosophy and what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) What are you asking me for? So then I go for a walk on Hampstead Heath with my great friend Michael Wood, who's a historian. He makes the most wonderful history documentaries. And and, um, Michael quoted an Egyptian poet to me, C.P. Kivafi, who talks about uh, the big yes and the big no. And there's this point of your life where you arrive and you go okay I'm just going to toddle along doing what I've always done or I'm going to grasp this decision which may be a catastrophe or may be fabulous you know and that's where you've arrived you know and the poem implies that if you say the big no you will always regret it if you say the big yes then of course it may be you know it may all go pear-shaped but you know you'll never know so next thing we know, we're in the Solomon Islands together, and, and uh, it was just the most wonderful time. Lauren, our eldest, was born there. Uh, I, I worked in a hospital that had uh, an English doctor, two English doctors, and an Australian doctor, and myself, and the most fabulous group of uh, Solomon Island uh, nurses. You know, every day was... I was still actually writing the Observer column then, but, but we had kind of crocodile attacks <laughs> we had kids dying of malaria and we had like it was it was challenging but it was kind of like mash you literally saved a life every day you know and it was full of terror and joy um i only did it for a year because deb's by the end of a year i was sort of having this extraordinary life in the hospital and deb had a baby to look after and uh, and was missing her job as a journalist so we came home after a year but it was a real high point and that little place on the edge of the Vernavona Lagoon in, uh, in the Solomon Islands will always yeah, be really special. So I was reading up about it and, yeah. and what a 
place. Yeah. The headhunting thing, is that oh, true? Yeah, there was, that, 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 headhunting was kind of only recently wiped out by the Christian missionaries who then discovered retrospectively that it had been the centre of a whole series of seasonal kind of rituals. That's I mean, what you, we do here. That's uh, what we do here. And you get rid of the headhunting and it's like taking away the rugby final from... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> like getting rid of the rugby final in Scotland or the food yeah. in Australia. You go, we, like, what are, what are we supposed to do now? <laughs> you know, like that and I said the other thing, there's a strange JFK link oh, in, yeah. in, in the Second World War. Yeah, I know. He said the PT-109 was his uh, gunboat that sunk on Kennedy Island where we used to go snorkeling. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was like uh, half a mile in a little boat off the coast. I'm just loving your stories. We're yeah. going to move to your uh, possession on Five My Life. And this is where I'm going to have to out. And I'm not going to tell you who this is, and it isn't who you might think it is. But uh, I um, was asking people uh, about you. And someone said, uh, it, with enormous affection, but said, he, he, and they sent this to me. It's like, okay. He retains childish, enthusiastic delight for the world around him. Oh, and he has a huge brain. Okay, that's about you. Now, that, that's a lovely thing for someone to say about somebody. But I've written it down uh, underneath the picture <laughs> of you with your possession looking childishly enthusiastic <laughs> underneath your bloody boat, the Steve Zizou. You go, so that guy's quote about you, it seems to be on the money because you look very happy about, you know, either you're painting a boat or something. I've so, got, a, a, like, just for the listeners, I've got a tin of anti-foul paint in my hand, and I'm, you know, which is probably deeply toxic stuff, and I'm painting the bottom of the boat. You've okay. got a huge, gorgeous smile on your face. It's an 18-foot long boat. I mean, this is, I have to admit, the second choice, because you keep on changing. Yeah, I think yeah, the first yeah. one was a bicycle, but uh, yeah. tell us about the... Is Steve Zuzu from the Bill Murray film? Steve Zuzu from the Bill Murray film. Tell us about the boat, mate. Okay, so the boat is like, it's a long boat, and the long boats are what they have in the islands for getting around and they're they're very fuel efficient and uh, very speedy there's no there's no sort of superstructures no cabin or anything my debs re, uh, refers to it um as my motorized surfboard because it's basically just a thing for speeding around the harbor but when we bought our house in sydney it was a ramshackle place on uh, in balmain on sydney harbor it was back in the day when you could still buy a waterfront house for less than a king's ransom uh, the great thing about this house is you could park a boat at the bottom uh -huh. of the garden. And when you've got a little speedy flat bottom boat that takes no maintenance, you can swim underneath it and scrape the bottom and, you know. But that gives you access to a Sydney. It's like living in Venice. You know, you can jump on the boat at the bottom of the garden, meet a friend in a cafe for coffee, cruise around all the palazzos, uh, take the kids over. We never had to build a swimming pool you just chuck the kids in the boat and off to the local beach and throw them overboard and um yeah look it has been a it's been a fabulous delight and now as we're all getting older there's a bunch of friends who i pick up three times a week from the wharf in balmain and we all go over to like a bunch of pirates we invade sort of greenwich beach opposite and we pile out and we swim our 20 laps and then we have a coffee and Zoom oh, again. Right, living yeah. the dream. Yeah, no, it's lovely, and it has been. Uh, well, you know, if you if if you grew up in Europe and you miss skiing and uh, and you're too old and scared to ride a motorbike, then that's the next best thing is to have a have a boat on the harbour. So, so when you were in rainy Edinburgh, yeah, you if, I, if someone said to you in fifty years' time you're going to be living in a place on a harbour with a boat whizzing around, you probably wouldn't have probably wouldn't have 
believe them. And, and you know, it's like your life kind of makes itself up as you progress and you sort of, uh, you don't know where and when it's going to end or where it's going to take you. I think probably, I love Edinburgh dearly and, and miss it still, but I, uh, but the, it doesn't really have the climate for boating and swimming. And, and I think I've always been drawn to hot climates, partly because, you know, it's much easier to be cheap and cheerful in these places, you know. So in Sydney, yeah, it is an extraordinary, magical city. We were in Venice once with the kids, and my son, uh, Stace, said, uh, oh, I wish we had a palazzo. And my daughter said, well, we kind of do, <laughs> <laughs> you can jump on the gondola and go anywhere. You can go off to the Lido. Yeah. Um, you, you talk wonderfully uh, about how films, good films, need to have a transformative moment in it, uh, yeah. usually. So, so, so you're taking the audience on a journey, you, you, you identify with the main protagonist, and then something transformative happens that, that enables the drama to work and there be an ending and whatever else. But that, the same is true. Uh, in life yeah. and I love the, I, I've forgotten the name of the poet what was the name of the, the big yes or the big uh, C.P. Gavafi yeah. brilliant yeah, just yeah. just what a wonderful yeah. wonderful thing and, and your your life from Edinburgh to Sydney from doctor to screenwriter to novelist and you are such a uh, warm engaging lovable character I'm going to ask one dark question before my uh, closing question sure um uh, any regrets? You know, I'm prepared for this one because I listened to your Charlie Teo interview, yeah? That, that, he, he gave a great answer, didn't he? I thought a rather wriggly answer, actually. Oh, <laughs> well, what, what, if, you're a, if you're a controversial oh, brain what, surgeon, you know, someone what, says, what, what do you regret? Your regrets? I have, of course we've all got regrets. And I, look, I've been reading Bridget Delaney's uh, book on Stoicism, which I think is a wonderful book, which I recommend to all your listeners. And... The Stoics, according to Bridget, believed that uh, you focus your life on the things that you can change. And so the past is the past, you know, whatever you did then. I mean, my, I would say my biggest regret was never finding a way of incorporating medicine and writing and, and carrying on doing both. Uh, my brother, George, who we're seeing this summer, once uh, joked that I was trying to live three lives simultaneously, and there's some truth in that and you know it is a regret because I had got such joy and such a sense of social worth from being a doctor and uh, but the truth is that if you're just doing it part-time you very quickly um, lose the kind of snappy front of mind reflexes that you need to make decisions in crises and so I kind of I retired myself very young at the age of, you know, just after. In fact, came back from the Solomon Islands, worked for six months in the, in the Royal Free Hospital doing pretty kind of cutting-edge obs and gynae and thought at the end of that six months, you know, these young, newly trained doctors are so much faster and smarter than I am. I, I was used to women who come in off a canoe and uh, pop out their fifth baby and say thanks very much and go home, and this was... Highly interventional medicine, a lot of cesareans, a lot of inductions. You know, there's a whole philosophical question there about whether medicine has become too technologized. But anyway, I, I realized that that was a foreign territory for me, you know. So, after, so I, I sort of then focused entirely on the writing. And, and, but it would have been lovely to 
still be able to contribute that way because certainly when you go to a third world country there's such a need and uh, there's not many of us who, who have those skills you know so yeah uh, that is a regret but you know it's just it's, it's hard to include everything in your life being a writer being a dad make, paying the bills and doing all the things that you love thank you for taking that question uh, on squarely sixth question who would yeah. you like to hear on Five My Life next and why? Uh, look, I think your podcast, because I've been listening to them and, and loving all of the oh, interviews, but because you. of the, the books that you write, you know, you skew towards, I guess, old farts like me. And I would love to hear from some young farts, you know. Right. And my friend Bill Lambach, who I'll introduce you to, his two sons have a band called Lime Cordial, which has just done phenomenally well in the last few years and so I think you should interview them about what it's like to become a pop star you can reflect going forward and you can reflect on your on your present of so, course, so you know, I, yeah. I am with you yeah yeah that. look you interview Mozart at the age of 22 and you know he's already done. that's right you to tell us about the symphony you wrote when you were eight Joan of Arc when you were 17 and you were exactly. saving or Leon <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been to these graveyards in India where you know you see the kind of the the, the gravestones of old um administrators of the empire you know died of malaria age 33 having become the yes. kind of the governor of uh, mysore you know whatever so alexander the great yeah. he, he ascended to the throne if it was a throne at 20 yeah 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 John Colley, you are a dead set legend, mate. I like the childish, enthusiastic delight for the world. You have been a delight. Thank you so much for sharing your five on five of my life. Thanks, Nigel. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and Sixty. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.